0: Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and I'll be reading beginning with verse 43 and focusing on uh, the the woman with the issue of blood. Luke chapter 8, verse 43. Hear now God's holy word. I'll actually begin a little bit earlier. It says, And Jesus went, and the people pressed around him, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it, who was it that touched me? And when all that denied it, Peter said, Master, the the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That is the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. Uh, We thank you that it ultimately points us, pushes us, and helps us to know Jesus Christ. And so we pray for that very end tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story of the the woman with the issue of blood, before I begin the actual story and sort of working my way through it, I want to look at just two two introductory matters um, that I think I, I want you to be aware of as I'm going through the story because they're going to They're gonna be kind of woven in and out of the story and through the story and so forth. One is the issue of miracles. I mentioned in in Uganda, most of my students are Pentecostals. So almost every Sunday, they come back and say, Doctor, what was your miracle this week? I said, I didn't have one and neither did you. And so we we go through this whole discussion of what's a miracle, what's the nature of miracles, why do they occur and so forth. That's related to the question that I'm gonna deal with in regard to this particular miracle, and even more particularly, uh, the Old Testament connection to, to, to miracles. I want to challenge you to think about this. I have, and I'm, it's an ongoing challenge even to myself as I try to work through, uh, when I get back to Uganda, I'm going to preach the Gospel of Luke. And so I'm going to be looking even more intently at miracles in, in the ministry of Jesus. I'm convinced of something so far, and that is that the, the miracles of Jesus and the miracles that are performed in His ministry are not random happenstances. In other words, it's not as if, I don't know how you remember this as a kid, but I remember as a kid sort of the, the woman with the issue of blood sort of reaching out and dink, touching Jesus and whoo, kind of like Jedi powers, you know, comes to her and she's healed or someone, you know, a blind man just happens to be here or a lame person just, quote, happens to be here or there. It's never like that in the miraculous ministry of Jesus ever that I, that I can find, and you may you may be, again, I'll throw out the challenge. There's pastors and, and elders here, so take it up and correct me, maybe. I may be wrong, but so far, I have never encountered a miracle in the life and ministry of Jesus that is not intimately connected to the Old Testament and Old Testament covenant theology. It's very significant, and it, it completely changes the nature of the miracles and why they happen. In other words, one of my challenges to you from now on when you're reading the New Testament, and I'm sure you, you get this challenge anyway is but when you read the New Testament, you need to read it in light of and connected to the Old Testament. You're asking yourself the question, why? What's happening here? What is it about issues of blood? What what is that related to? And what about, in particular, what about the fringe of his garment? What's going on there? Why did she touch that? And what does that have to do with anything? Is it really random or is it closely connected to the Old Testament? I'm convinced it's very closely. In fact, intimately connected to the Old Testament. And without the Old Testament, you couldn't even understand why this is happening. And in connection to the Old Testament, there is also a deep connection to the life and ministry of Jesus, who He is and what He does and what we also expect from Him. So that's number one thing. Like, why did Jesus walk in the water? I mean, I have I wondered that as a kid. I know why I, I, know why I would walk on the water. I think it's super cool. I mean, Walking on the water and wave to my friends, I I know exactly how I would use miracles if I had miraculous powers. That map up there of Uganda from Entebbe Airport to where we live is like five and a half hours. If I had miraculous powers, I would move all the traffic out of my way and just go right through the middle, you know, again, as if miracles were magical, but they're not. And they don't work like that. None of them do. So when you keep the miracles connected to Jesus, to the Old Testament, it's amazing. We'll see the purpose and meaning of the New Testament, miracles in light of the Old Testament. A second item that's involved in this story, by way of introduction, is the issue of faith in the Gospel of Luke. I'm really loving the Gospel of Luke as I'm getting ready to study through it, because in the Gospel of Luke, faith is not just something you sort of have as a mere belief. Uh, It's not just something you believe in. Jesus isn't someone you just sort of trust in generically or, you know, generally. When you look at the Gospel of Luke, you see that faith is displayed as the kind of activity that causes people to climb up into trees that causes people to rip the roof off of houses. Are you with me? That's the faith you see in the Gospel of Luke. It's not just, you know, dink, and you're touching Jesus. or gently. This is faith that will not let anything or anyone stop you from taking hold of Jesus. That's the faith that I hope is renewed in you tonight, even as you consider this miraculous story. That's the faith that this woman had. She didn't even just gently squeeze her way through. And when you see this miracle, as we'll see it in just a moment, You'll find that we have a woman who was literally crawling on her hands and knees, pushing through a crowd, defying all sorts of ceremonial rules, and shoving and pushing until she got to the garments, to the edge of Jesus' garments. This is faith as it's displayed in Luke's gospel. And I love that faith. It's the kind of faith that causes you to leave things. It's the kind of faith that won't let anything get in the way of you and Jesus. And of what you need to do to get to Him and to be faithful to Him. Are you with me? In Uganda, there's always a phrase that preachers always shout out, Are we together? And the people say, Amen or Hallelujah or whatever you say. You don't, oh, thank you. I was going to say, You didn't have to, but you can. <laughs> so, Are we together? You see that? So, faith and also the Old Testament connection to these miracles. Let's look at the story then as you see this woman. First, uh, you have. I have the question, why the garment? Why the edge of the garment? What was going on there? Luke's gospel makes, uses a particular word, the edges, uh, not, it wouldn't be the edges here, it would be the edges way down towards almost the ankles of Jesus. That's where she goes, that's where she, she shows her attention, that's where she's touching and taking hold of those edges. Why? Again, if you keep it close to the Old Testament, I think you'll discover something that it popped out to me as so obvious once I saw it, but I never had made the connection, so I, I hope you'll be as equally excited. Uh, I read one article about this that said the following, and I hope you won't find it alluring, but this guy said, she went down on her hands and knees and she touched the bottom of his robe because in Acadian, according to Ak- Akkadian uh, royal practices, you had to go and touch the hem of the blah, blah, blah. I don't get it. I don't buy that, okay? It does show humi- humility. It does show hu- uh, submission, but what is it that she touches? If you look at Numbers chapter 15. It describes something of Jesus' clothing. We don't often think about Jesus in terms of the biblical descriptions of him. He would be wearing a robe. He would look like a rabbi, identifiably so from a distance, because people could see him and say, Rabbi. He he probably even wore a turban from time to time of sorts, a rabbinical turban, and robes. And on the edges of those robes would be tassels. Jewish people had edges on their robes. And here's why. According to Numbers 15, 37... And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that thou shalt tell them, and they will make for themselves fringes, or edges, upon the borders of their garments throughout their generations. And you shall put upon the fringes of the borders a lace of blue, and it shall be on the fringes, or the edges, that's that word, edges, Uh, and you shall look on them, and you shall remember. Notice, they're, they're deliberately symbolical. I'm not just making this up. One guy said, you'd made that up. You just made a connection. No. Look at what God says. I want you, God says, to look at these and remember something and think about something. Think, think about what they symbolize. They symbolize the righteousness of God. The foundation of the nation of Israel was set down on four corners according to the righteousness of God. And the people of Israel, when they even looked at each other, were to look around and say, we are a people set aside and founded on the righteousness of God. They would see it. So remember that. That's what she's going after here, these edges. It says, And you shall not turn back from your imaginations and after the sight of your eyes in the things which you go after uh, prostituting yourselves, that you may remember and perform the commands, and you shall be a holy people unto your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So the edges of these garments on the the people of Israel were to be reminders of the righteousness of God. We'll see that in just a moment when we we make some more connections. So this woman has this problem, this issue of blood, and and that's where she goes. She goes to the edges of the garments of, of this person. Why does she have this problem? What's the big deal? She's not only physically sick, but of course she's ceremonially unclean. Her issue of blood, most likely some kind of female, feminine issue. And the, and the Scripture says she had spent all that she had and was no better, but grew worse. You'll notice it also says she realized no one could heal her, nobody. Nobody had the answer for this. And this is related to the whole question of cleanness and uncleanness. This is going to push us back to the Old Testament. This is a, a, to me it's obvious now, but, but it was surprising to hear, like, why, what is it about the edges of the garments of priests that would cause anybody to look and say, I wonder if righteousness, clean cleansing, healing could come from those tassels, could come from those edges. If you look at the book of Haggai, in Haggai chapter 2, there's a question and answer that's directly related to our story. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 11, and and Haggai is interesting because Haggai outlines a series of questions that God's people were asking the priest, just like when your pastor sits down at a fellowship meal. People always set them aside and say, Do you believe in double predestination? And all these questions they're always getting asked. Well, the priest in the Old Testament got similar questions. And one of them was related to the righteousness of the robes or the edges of a priest. Haggai chapter 2, it says this Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest according to the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold or the edge of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any food, Will it become holy? Now, see, here's the question. People were curious if the priests in the Old Testament would have their robes or their garments cleaned, set aside, made holy, so that when they were handling meat or the tongs or censers or other things, and those holy items touched their garments, those garments would be holy. So then the people had the question, well, what if a piece of holy meat or an holy item touches the the robes of a priest, and then the priest brushes brushes up against something, will righteousness or holiness or cleanness go out from his garments? I hope you see the connection I'm making already. (laughs) That question was central to the Old Testament problem of uncleanness. Here's what the answer was. It's not a a good one if you're in the Old Testament. And the priest said, no, (laughs) it doesn't. Righteousness does not go out from the garments or from the edges of the priest. Leviticus six twenty seven says, "Everyone who touches its flesh must be holy, and when it's sprinkled, and any garment you shall wash on that, and it is sprinkled in a holy place." So the garments could be clean, but cleanness never goes out from those garments. And then in Haggai two thirteen, to complicate or to make the problem even worse, there, the people asked the priest, "Well, what about unrighteousness? Can that go out?" And so in Haggai chapter two verse thirteen, it says, "And Haggai said." If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these things, will it become unclean? So the priest answered and said, yes, it shall be unclean. That stinks, doesn't it? <laughs> so the, the people, and I want you to understand, the longing in the hearts of the people was that the hope would come, that someday maybe a priest could come, and from that priest's holy garments, righteousness and healing could go out. And in the Old Testament, the answer was no, no, and no. And furthermore, the problem was complicated because everything unclean, when it brushed up against something, transferred the uncleanness outward. You see the problem? Are we together? Are we together? Okay. (laughs) So the problem is uncleanness is always going out everywhere, and cleanness will not move out from the holy place. You had only one place you could go to the temple to find the waters of cleanness, The waters of righteousness and the waters of healing, and that was stationary. It was fixed in the temple. You had to go there to be cleansed. But healing and righteousness was not going out. Holiness, holiness in the Old Testament does not spread out. And this provoked, of course, what most of you already know in in the New Testament where you have this obsession of rabbis and teachers with cleanness and uncleanness, things to touch things not to touch, places to go, places not to go, things you could or couldn't do. Much of it was do not taste or do not touch or do not even smell. The rabbis actually, I, <laughs> this, is, this is not funny, but it's, it's humorous because these are the religious leaders in Israel. And they prided themselves on how, on how difficult they made it for unclean people around them. They prided themselves on it. One guy said, I have never even so much as waved at a leper. Could you imagine? Hi, rabbi. Uh. (laughs) The rabbi who's there to greet you and to bless you in the name of the Lord, much like Boaz might have, where they said, the Lord bless you, and he would say, the Lord bless you also. That's the kind of greeting you would expect to receive from your priest and your religious leaders. Instead, these religious leaders would say things like this. When I'm walking down the street in the marketplace and I find that there's been a leper on that street, I won't even buy an egg from any of the vendors. We're very proud of that. <laughs> in other words, the, the, the rabbis of that day would say, no less than a distance of four cubics or six feet must be kept between you and a leper, even if the wind comes in that direction. They said, one rabbi says, scarcely a hundred feet is even acceptable. And another rabbi boasted that he would, even, <laughs> he would even carry around stones to throw at leprous people that could come near him. So here's, here's the religious leaders of the nation of Israel throwing rocks at people who need Christ, who need help, who need hope. That's, that's the situation that we're in. And you can also see this woman's terrible situation. She had a, a situation in which, we're, if she were somehow to go home to her house, try to fix her family supper, guess what? The supper's unclean. If she comes home and touches the door, a threshold of her house, the whole house is unclean. She can't help her children or her daughter change their clothing or or be healed or anything. She can't be with her husband or her husband will become. You see this? This woman is completely set apart by her uncleanness. She can't touch or be touched. Now, I hope you'll notice something. This is characteristic of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus steps onto the public stage, he begins radically reversing all of these things. It's so powerful and so wonderful. He just steps in and says, you can't be touched. It's almost as if he's saying, oh, you can't be touched? Watch this. (laughs) He goes to them. He moves in particular directions to make sure that those who were outcast and those who were cut off from family and friends and culture and hope are touched by him. In this case, the woman herself is the one who moves to touch him. And you can imagine her story. She's, uh, she's someone who has spent all that she has trying to be healed. I pictured, uh, well, we've had friends in situations like this that have been in physical difficulties where they go to the doctor and the doctor's like, don't know. And they send you to a specialist. And the specialist says, Don't know, there's another guy I know on the other side of this town. You go to him and he gives you a <laughs> he gives you medicine, and the medicine makes your problem worse than it did when you first started. And so you finally you you know what, at least with our friends' situation, you usually go through a progression in America from the regular doctors to the specialist, you know, to the chiropractic, to the naturopath, and then of course to essential oils. Now, I don't know anyway, I don't know if you do essential oils, but you know, you see what I'm saying. So this woman's just tried everything. Every remedy, every doctor, every, everything she could find, and all her money is gone. It's a terribly hopeless situation for this woman. She can't touch her family. She can't be near her family. She can't be involved in her culture. She can't go to any religious celebrations. She's completely cut off, and there's no one that can help her. And she puts her eyes on the tassels of Jesus Christ, the tassels, again, that represent and point to the righteousness of of the Lord that has set them aside. And actually every Israelite should have known that the edges of these garments represented something. And here in our story, I think that we're we're informed to note that they not only represented the righteousness of the Lord, but the hope of the righteousness coming in Messiah. Do you know every Israelite was to be aware of edges? The edges of your hair, the edges of your garments, even the edge of your beard. You ever wondered about that? You weren't supposed to shave the edges of your beard. Why? You weren't supposed to harvest the edges of your, cor- of your fields. Realize that. Everywhere Jewish people were looking, they were reminded that the edges are places of righteousness from which, in the case of their fields, blessings and mercy would go out to the needy. From them, from Israel. Everywhere they looked, the people of Israel were to remember and hope in the words and the commandments of the Lord that they were a people established by the righteousness of the Lord. And up till now, up till this very story, righteousness never moved out. But what you read about in this story, what you see in this woman's story is someone who, and think about this now, this is a woman who's going down, the tassels are probably down lower to his ankles. This is a woman who, I mean, you have to think about it. She was defying every convention possible. She wasn't supposed to be touching anyone. And she literally gets on her hands and knees, and she shoves her way. I mean, you can imagine her mindset. I, I picture sort of people, people uh, becoming unclean like bowling pins. You know, tw- 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 they're just b- bouncing out of the way as this woman says, "I'm going to get to the tassels of this man. Maybe he's the one. You see that? Maybe he's the one who's who in whom we can hope that everything could finally be changed." And when she takes hold of his garments, all of us are informed that he is. (laughs) This is a new point in all of redemptive history, in all of human history. This is a new point from Adam, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, from that time all the way through the Old Testament, righteousness did not move out. There were fixed places where you could go for righteousness. But this time, when that woman crawled on her hands and her knees and touched the garments or the edges of Jesus, at that particular point, now everything changed. And, And radically so, right? Now, not only, think about this, not only is uncleanness stopped in its tracks, through Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of God is going forth all directions all the time. Isn't that amazing? This is a story that's not just about a hopeless woman who's healed. This is a story about a new time in history, a new place in history. Jesus Christ is now the righteousness of God come to earth and come to touch those who could up to this point not be touched because of their uncleanness. And I hope, beloved, you see yourself in this story. This is us. We are the unclean. We are the hopeless. We're the ones who can't do anything in and of ourselves, and we're unrighteous until Jesus comes to us. This is the great transaction of all the ages where the righteousness of God comes to us through Jesus Christ and our uncleanness is given to him and he gives us his righteousness. Amen. This is a great story. This is not just a story. I mean, it is a beautiful story of a woman and her faith and her tenacity, but it's also our story. And it's the story of the church of Jesus Christ. It's encouraging for me as a missionary because a lot of times, and we've met many, many missionaries who go out into the mission field, and they come home discouraged because they feel like they got nothing done, and not only do they get nothing done, they come back discouraged because it doesn't feel like to them the righteousness and cleanness of Christ is moving out and making much of a difference. But I hope you'll be encouraged tonight. I hope you'll be encouraged by this story and our story in Christ that the righteousness of Christ is moving out. I see it in Uganda, and you see it here, I'm sure. I'm sure you saw it this morning. I missed your presentation on the Boardwalk Chapel. Some of you saw it then, where you're going out, and the righteousness of Christ is going out as the gospel of Jesus Christ moves out into the nations through the church. The church of Jesus Christ is now the place of righteousness and the hope of righteousness. And we go out from here, and we take that righteousness to the gospel to the whole nations, and they're cleansed, and they have hope like nothing else. I even think, and I'll sneak this in, and I'll just let Pastor Dale deal with the consequences. <laughs> I even think it makes sense of Acts chapter 19. It's been a perplexing passage for me for all my life, where you see in the ministry and life of Paul, Paul has this situation where they're cutting off edges of a handkerchief and sending it out. Now, I got, when I was a pastor in Dayton, I got this flyer once in the mail, and I opened it up, and it was one of these really weird pictures of Jesus where if you moved it certain ways, the eyes would move, and I was like, whoa, and it said, touch touch this handkerchief, right, put your hand on that handkerchief and believe, and you'll be blessed a hundredfold, and then take it and put it in, in the mail and give it to another person, and they'll be blessed a thousandfold. I sent that to, I put that in one of the boxes of one of my elders at church. Uh, for some reason, he didn't think it was funny. I don't know why, but. anyway, neither one of us were blessed. Well, we weren't blessed because that's not how miracles work. And that's not what was happening with Paul either. Paul wasn't just throwing out holy hankies in multiple directions, you see. What was happening is, and I I think it's connected to this passage, we're seeing in the ministry of Paul and the apostles that the righteousness of God, like the garments from Jesus Himself, is going out through the apostolic ministry of the church. It's not that they were, that we're empowered to give out holy hankies. It's that that Paul's ministry as an apostle and the church's ministry as the church is directly connected to this story, directly connected to the righteousness of God that goes out into the nations. I hope you'll be encouraged in that tonight because what's happening in the story is what is happening also in our lives. When you're more aware of it, it's a glorious thing to be a part of. When you're sometimes, when you're a missionary, you actually, you see it, you're on the cutting edge of it. You go to a different nation and you see things you've never seen before. But if you're a church, like I think this one is, conscious of your mission, conscious of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, having transformed your life, conscious of then taking that transformed life and touching the lives of other people and making a difference in the world. I hope you'll be called to that tonight. I'll close by saying just a couple of things. I hope at least two things happen. Number one, I hope perhaps you'll be reminded of, of, the, of the, the kind of faith you haven't had lately, <laughs> which is this woman's kind of faith, right? The kind of faith, like I said, that climbs up in trees. You see it in Luke's gospel with Zacchaeus. You see it with the man who literally, they literally ripped a roof off of a house. Nothing was going to stop them from getting to, to Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. This woman also literally shoved her way on her hands and knees, driving through the crowd, not giving one whit's care about all the, all the ceremonial conventions that she was breaking because she had to get to Jesus. That's the kind of faith we also need to have. Many of us remember when we were in the old days, maybe when you were converted, maybe it was a college experience or something like that, when, when your faith was like that. May God renew it again tonight. Make your faith like that, that, that you'll, be, you'll be the kind of person... That won't allow anything or anyone to get in the way of you getting to Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, do it. <laughs> do it now. Do it tonight. Do it as soon as possible. Don't delay. Know that you're, you're, you're like this woman. You have no other hope. There's no other person who can heal you. There's no other person who can help you. There's no other person who has the righteousness of God that can cleanse you but Jesus Christ. And lastly, I hope you as a church will be conscious of this, and I I think you are from what I'm getting to know about this church, but you'll be conscious of your role as a church in bringing the righteousness of God to the nations. It's a wonderful thing. I I read a guy whose name is Rodney Stark. I'm I'm a historian by training. Rodney Stark is not a historian. He's a sociologist, so he irritates historians, and he also irritates sociologists because he acts historical and stuff. He's, but I really like to read him. He's challenging. And he asked the question, how is it? And I, and I always get asked this question in my church history class in Uganda. How is it that 12 guys, 12 nobodies basically, 12 nobodies with very little education, maybe two or three guys had an education, how is it that they changed the world and created the world's largest religion in the history of the world? how did they do that? Stark guesstimates that uh, in, in a 40 AD there was about 1,000 Christians. 40 A.D., and again, these are guesstimates, but they're probably pretty close. By 350 A.D., 25 years after the Council of Nicaea, 350 A.D., there were almost 34 million Christians. (laughs) How did that happen? With just 12 guys. It happened because, according to Stark, he says something that I think is connected to this story. He says they went out and they touched people. In fact, they usually touched people that other tribes and other groups wouldn't touch particularly, he said, the sick and the needy. Stark said something fascinating, and I've seen this in Uganda. He said when, when there's an outbreak of some kind of disease in the ancient world, and it's true in Africa too, uh, the witch doctors were the ones that used to have, like, all the remedies, you know, every, every, an answer for you to heal this disease. But when the witch doctors said, this is deadly, they ran. They left. And the people that stayed to help those who were sick were the Christians. And Stark said when the disease went through and the Christians had remained there and the witch doctors came back, the people had been converted, and they ran the witch doctors off. And many, many thousands and tens of thousands of Christians, Stark says, argues, and I think persuasively, were changed and transformed because Christians stayed and touched them. They reached out to them. They brought the righteousness of Christ to those people regardless of any risk to their own life or help. They didn't care even if they died because they believed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the mission of the church, to make disciples of the nations this way. And there's a fascinating uh, section in Zechariah, and I'll I'll close on this. It says this, and I hope you'll note the language. It's speaking of our days, but it's written by Zechariah in chapter 8, verse 23. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve or edge or corner of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this story, this woman, uh, for our story. And we pray, heavenly Father, that if there's someone here tonight who doesn't know her story intimately, that you would cause them to be changed and transformed. Renew and strengthen in all of us, Lord, the same kind of faith that's active, that's, that's energetic, that's tenacious, that takes hold of Jesus Christ no matter what comes our way. Lord, do that in the hearts and minds of the leaders of this church, of the people of this church, that as they go out into this community, it will be like Zachariah's prophecy that ten men from every language of the nations shall take hold of the edge of a Jewish man, and they will say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.